ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Ed Chambliss. Ed is the founder and CEO of Best Friend Brands. He's also the author of A One-Legged Stool, How Shareholder Primacy Has Broken Business and What We Can Do About It. Hi, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. The title of your book is A One-Legged Stool, How Shareholder Primacy Has Broken Business and What We Can Do About It. It's a particularly timely book on this podcast. We've talked a lot about young consumers and how Gen Z has a penchant for researching brands before they purchase things. And we've also talked to consultants who have studied employee engagement and its relationship to brand performance. And these conversations feel like they're all fighting against a pretty powerful force. And that's the force at the center of your book, this primacy of shareholders. Because for as long as I can remember, maximizing shareholder value has been the name of the game. And the implicit understanding is that if we take care of the shareholder, the market will take care of everything else. But your thesis is that it's breaking business. Can you explain where this a priori assumption about the primacy of shareholders has actually got things wrong? Absolutely. I, I think it you know it started about 50 years ago in, in 1970, where the belief was that focusing on making a profit would work all the inefficiencies out of the system, and that would benefit everyone. And for a while, it really did benefit everybody. But after a while, you run out of fat to really trim off and you start cutting into muscle. And I think mm. the overwhelming quest for efficiency has gotten out of control over the last 50 years, to the point where companies will take funds away from other people and programs that are necessary for their success and their survival. They will pay their employees less. They will raise prices or lower service on their customers, and they'll refuse to live up to their commitments they made to communities where they have a location, all so they can pay more money to one of the members of the stakeholder ecosystem, the shareholders. This wasn't always the case. I mean, you say it started in, in 1970, so it wasn't always Gordon Gecko greed is good. No, it, it wasn't. And, and that's one thing that also gives me hope for change uh, <laughs> from, you know, because it I, a lot it of changed people, once. My, yeah, myself included, grew up in the middle of this phenomenon. We think this is normal until you really start looking at it and reading the, and finding out that normal is actually abnormal. But between 1930 and 1970, the dominant model for business was something called managerialism. And it's where the executives who ran the company were more like stewards of this social enterprise. And they balanced the competing needs of customers and employees and communities and investors. And you know what? They did a great job. 1930 to 1970 is the period where America became an economic superpower and mm. everybody benefited from that. So if managerialism was this old way of doing things and it it seems like it made sense and it made us a powerhouse, what was it that motivated the change? And if they're breaking business, why hasn't the one-legged stool tipped over yet? So a couple of questions in there, I guess, sure. first, sort of what, what prompted managerialism to change? 
Well, I think that when you're used to getting a good payout, you don't want it to stop. And in the 1970s, the world was changing. America was getting more competition from overseas. Uh, OPEC put in the oil embargo and the price of gas tripled. We had stagflation, that wonderful combination of inflation and high unemployment. And all these things had people looking for ways to improve the efficiency of business, especially people who had wealth, people who had investments in in companies. Hmm. So that's when Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize laureate, first voiced the concept behind shareholder primacy. And in the quote from his article in the New York Times, in the New York Magazine was fantastic. It was the purpose of a company is to make as much money as possible for its shareholders. Hmm. That's a direct quote. And it just, he says, if you do that, everything else will take care of itself. And I think that gains some traction out there because it was simpler than balancing all the competing interests. It's quantifiable. If Hmm. I can go for a dollar, why not? It's easy to figure out the value of a dollar and how to get there rather than trying to balance the competing interest of customers, employees, and communities. Right. But to your point, once you've once you've whittled it away, once you've gotten it as skinny and efficient as possible, it ceases to serve itself. But why hasn't the stool fallen over yet? Or or, or do you believe right now we're in that stool falling over phase? I, I believe the stool is pretty rickety right now. I, I'm looking for a, a matchbook to put underneath one of the legs because it's wobbling. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that we are in a slow motion collapse of the stool right now. And it's really been brought about by the fact that information technology has made so much information available to us that people are starting to notice this. Mm-hmm. But companies for the last 10 or even 20 years have been uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, if you would. And Peter's starting to find out, and he's getting pretty mad, that we're taking money away from from employee salaries. We're increasing economic inequality in our in our country. Mm. And the split between the haves and the have-nots is getting bigger and bigger. And yet we count on customers of all levels of affluence to provide revenue for companies to survive. So I think we're in the middle of a slow motion fall. Hmm. And certain people, including myself, are trying to to point out the danger and say, uh, this isn't working. We need a more stable stool. And if we do it right, it can lift everybody. Right. So the constituents I mentioned at the top of our conversation, the employees, the consumers, they can actually make a difference. I ask because while it seems nice, it seems like an ideal, it also seems that there are so many factors that that they aren't a uniform cohort with a uniform interest. You know, Gen Z loves checking on how brands are behaving, but then they also shop at Walmart. And so sometimes people claim a value, but then they shop based on their pocketbook. And, and I know we don't behave the way economists would like us to behave. We're not just purely money driven. I, I, it's how, how much influence can consumers and employees actually make? I, I personally believe they can make a, a massive change and a massive influence in driving change in, in how businesses run. After all, customers are where 100% of the revenue come from. Hmm. And customers are not robots. I think customers struggle with this conflict. I think, frankly, business executives struggle with this, this conflict. Hmm. That, that they're trying to say to each stakeholder group, you're my favorite, you're the most important to me. They say to customers, oh, you're number one. They say to their employees, our employees mean everything. And they show to the investors, 
we're we're just giving every penny we can to you, even to the point of driving damage further down the road. But I think it, it, we we live in a time where information is a lot more available, and if customers and employees and even communities and, and investors too have more information about companies and what they're actually doing, not just what they're saying, they can choose to buy from certain companies. They can choose to work for certain companies. They can choose to invest in certain companies. Mm-hmm. So I think if the information can get out there and overcome some of the myths that this is the way free enterprise works, they can actually make a change. Right. What's interesting is we have the global marketplace. And so this is what helped power that greed is good. We can we can do all these evil things around the bend and nobody knows about it. But now we have social media so we can be aware of the, you know, the children making the iPhones, you know, yes. what have you. But at what point do people decide to buy the cheap T-shirt rather than the one with the union label? And are there certain companies where this is more relevant and likely to happen than others? That's a great question. I, I think people don't know what they don't know. And one of the things I'm a big proponent of is sharing more information so people realize the non-monetary costs of their purchases. If 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 I go to Walmart like anybody else and I take a look at the price tag and I see, you know, $12.99 marked down to $8.99, marked down to $4.99, that's that's one piece of information. That's a pretty strong piece of information. But I don't see the hidden costs behind it. Right. You don't see that it actually is costing four hundred dollars in damaged environmental impact in Vietnam. Right, exactly. Or causing you know, environmental damage, uh, putting workers in, in Bangladesh in, in danger for their lives because infrastructure of the factories where they work is so horrible. We don't see any of that. And I think over the last few decades, we've seen little attempts, little spurts here and there of, hey, there's this story and there's that story. When I talk to people about what I've written in the book, they're familiar with a lot of little pieces, but they're having a hard time stitching it together into a fabric. And I think that the more information we share with people, the better idea they'll understand of not just the monetary cost, but the non-monetary cost. And if they want to choose the cheapest option cash-wise and just say, yep, I'm okay doing this to the environment, fine. That's our market. That's that's the customer's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But we can't expect people to make smart purchases without giving them the information to consider. So where would be the locus of the change? Is this a change that a brand who decide to be the good, full rounded citizen that they start marketing and educating about, look, these, look at my competitors, this is the hidden costs, or is the change a group of dedicated consumers, a group of dedicated employees? Where do you see the locus of change happening? I I like to believe that this can originate in business because it is a pro-business thought. Mm -hmm. It's a way for brands to regain so much of that lost trust that's come over the last few decades. Again, as we all talk about, people have social media and they they see and hear just about anything, whether it's real or not, about a brand and they'll form these impressions. So I think it's a real brand crisis. We talk Mm -hmm. a lot in marketing, obviously, about brand purpose. Right. And what is your brand purpose? And a lot of brand purposes are very noble, but they live inside this competing box of extracting wealth to give to shareholders. So I think you can have a organic brand purpose where you are 
serving human needs, because that's the one thing that all these stakeholders have in common. They're human beings and they have human needs. And business is at its best when it creates utility mm-hmm. that can solve human needs. And people will pay for that. They'll want to work for those companies. They'll invest in those companies and they'll invite those companies to their neighborhood. Right. You talk about the rate of change in your book and discuss what coming to the exponential tipping point has meant for consumer behavior. Can you touch on that a little bit? Because I think that's an important aspect of the context. Sure. I, I think the the rate of adoption and the rate of information growth is, is beyond any one person's ability to fathom it. We reach a point of information overload. There's just so much information out there and things are changing so quickly. I don't know what I need to know. I don't know what I can forget. And I don't know what information is out of date. Hmm. So computing power, the amount of data and information out there is doubling by some estimates every 11 hours. <sighs> Including all the all the all the IoT information about you know what my refrigerator is doing right now, which doesn't really matter to me, but it matters to somebody. Right. But the fact that there's so much information out there, I really just I, I can't fathom that. So instead, I retreat and mm. I retreat into my world and my little circle, and I try and see what's impacting me, and just assume someone else is taking care of the bigger picture, which is a dangerous assumption. Despite how good our economy is is at solving things, it's a dangerous assumption. So that's why business would need to be the one that makes this change because people are just overwhelmed and retreating. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I, I look at this as a brand problem that can be solved. Right. If, if, if you, business is the only one out there, business is almost 90% of US GDP. It is mm. by far the, the entity with the most power and resources, including the logistics systems, which can be fundamental to tracking all these consequential costs. The just-in-time inventory model mm. grows up by tracking things as they move around the country and around the world, and they are able to keep track of all these things. So if we can try and tabulate and gather this information, business already has a lot of the tools in place to do this and they can turn that into a plus and they can say hey we're doing this we're right. we're taking care of the environment look at our look at our diversity of our board look at look at how we're providing equal pay regardless of gender or age and do those things and, and really get the message out there so i see business doing it because i don't think individuals can well interesting point because you mentioned how the primacy of shareholders led to inequality and wealth. And so what's what I kind of find interesting is you have when the Soviet Union implodes, it doesn't develop a progressive socialist economy, but rather went straight into a corrupt oligarchy that siphoned off the wealth of the state into a few players. And then you have this capitalist system end up with a very wealthy 1% influencing government, holding a lot of the levers of power. Starting from two different places, you end up with some very rich, concentrated power and, you know, convincing them to give up the goodies. I mean, we've just had Elon Musk put a personal offer into one of the yep. major social platforms. Now, yep. you can, uh, there, there are many, many different arguments, but it's one guy. You know, that's a, as opposed to a board where you at least have a multiplicity of opinions, this is one person. So how do you, how do you convince people? How do you convince somebody that they need to have other people? It seems like Musk, for example, feels very comfortable that he knows all by himself what the best thing is. I I think you look at, at anybody out there and, and, you know, I'm, I guess, I guess I'm a humanist. I guess I have faith in humanity. (laughs) 
Uh, and sorry about that, but I do. Devil's advocate, me. Yeah, I, 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 you know. <laughs> but 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 I look at people. I, I you know I even look at Elon Musk. He okay. has been the he has been the beneficiary of so many smart decisions and luck and other people, and he's in a real position of of accumulated wealth and power. Right. I too am worried about the 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 fact that Twitter will be turning private. What that does in terms of of how that's going to treat not only the application but the impact of that huge ecosystem on the world, at least if it's a public company, you have the 10K filings and you see some of what's going on, but private companies, you have no idea what they're doing. Right. But, but at the same time, I, I, I do have faith in humanity. And, mm. I, and I look at even Elon Musk wants something more than money. Mm. I think investors want a clean environment. They mm. want a nice dinner with their family. They want music and culture and injustice and equality. If for no other reason, than it keeps the rioters away from your own door. Right. Right. That you, you actually do have to exist in the world that there isn't a secret planet just for you. You can't go to your gated community entirely. That There's a right. shared, there are some shared things here. How much do you believe that regulation is an important lever of change here? I think it can play a supporting role, but I'm I'm not a huge fan of regulation for regulation's sake, because I think what we live in right now is actually a problem for business. Right. That so they, you think that, this is this is a case of business will be motivated to correct this? I think business will be motivated. That said, I do think government can play a role and it can play the role it does best, which is providing a centralized methodology for reporting up some of these other costs. Mm. In the book, I talk about the the concept of a consequential price tag uh, that goes anything you buy that talks about as this product was produced and as you consume it, here's what it's going to do to the environment. Here's what it's going to do to the society we live in. And I that, that report, that that labeling would make such a difference to me. I, I know, for instance, simply seeing calories makes me consume food differently at different restaurants. And precisely. those kinds of things would make such a difference. There was a, and I didn't follow it. There was something about one of the filings, whether companies were going to have to track their environmental impact, not right, just right, of their right. direct. The SEC, yeah, the yeah. SEC proposed rule change and it's the exact same thing. And it, and it goes back to what you mentioned, which is the nutrition facts label that they started putting on packaged food in the 1980s. Mm. They, they never came out and said, you must remove the amount of trans fat in your food. They just made you say, hey, we have two grams of this icky stuff in, in our food. And the market forces said, I don't want that. And companies right. change their recipe. The same exact thing. The SEC has proposed a rule where companies will need to report and quantify what their environmental uh, impact is as it relates to climate change. And people have been all up in arms about this because they say it's governmental overreach. But it, it, in reality, it's it's what government does best. It's just saying, just, just tell Just people. tell us. Just tell yeah. us. We're not Let telling you what to do, but have an informed. Yeah. And what was interesting was it wasn't just your direct, it was your whole supply chain. So Correct. you couldn't get out of it by saying, well, we don't you know, pollute the environment, the sub company over here, they're the ones who are doing it, which I, I thought was interesting. Do you know where that shook out or where that is right that's now? Still in the, that's still in the question and answer period. And I think it's a 90 day question and answer period. So about a month and a half, maybe maybe May or June, we we should get a ruling from them. I personally hope it goes through because I don't think there's there's anything bad about it. It just, well, it's just telling, it's just sharing information. It's just yeah. creating an informed, I mean, if we talk about the market, then it's about providing information so that people can make a, make a market-based decision. And then 
that's helpful to them. Right. If whether I'm an investor or a consumer or an employee, I like to know the price. Great. So tell me the price in a non-monetary currency. Tell me the price to the economy and I'll, let me and to the environment and then let me make my own up my my own mind. Right. Because then all of a sudden the argument that this is bad for business, these environmental things, all of a sudden, if people are able to make choices, maybe it's not bad for business. Maybe it's beneficial for yep. business. It's yep. just a matter of knowing. Well, if, if you're the company with the lowest footprint, hey, competitive advantage, start advertising that benefit and, and let the market forces reward companies that do a better job. Because again, we're all human beings, no matter what role we're playing in the stakeholder ecosystem. And seeing that this company, and by supporting this company, either through purchase or employment or investment or whatever, is paying me back in a non-monetary currency of a better society and a better environment, that's a price I want to pay. That's a cost I want to pay for. And that's that's a product I want to I want to support. Right. Well, it's interesting also the issue of regulation, looking at how currently in Florida, there is a situation where Disney in response to employees and consumer groups made a statement that was counter to social policy of the governor and that the governor then took a regulatory stance against, against them, trying to enforce a social policy. So it was putting at odds what Disney believes their customer base is, what Disney knows its employee base is, counter to that. What should a business in that situation do? How do they prioritize the different constituencies? Is everybody equal? How do they, where do they balance these things? I mean, also this comes into play in a global economy where you maybe have foreign industry players sitting on part of your supply chain. Right. Well, again, I, I, I think that you look at business executives out there, leaders who are trying to make these decisions. And, and back in the days of managerialism, they looked at it on a case by case basis and mm. decided when programs needed to be invested in for the future, when they could pay out higher dividends to to their investors. Mm-hmm. So I think it's on a case by case basis. But the other thing is that it, it, executives while they're people, their big job is not just to convert the world into money. Their job is to really animate this larger than life, artificial life form called a corporation Hmm. and use it to better society. That's why we gave it a charter in the first place. And that company is also a customer. So, you know, call it the Walmart effect. If you want to sell something at Walmart, you need to have a low price and you need to probably keep bringing that price down every year if you want to retain the contract. Mm-hmm. So I think businesses can really use their consumer, their purchasing power as a customer to go around to even global suppliers and say, this is what we want you to do. We want this information about the impacts that you're creating and that your suppliers are creating with right. an eye towards the brand. Because the brand is, is, as you know, that relationship, it's more than the logo and the tagline. It's the relationship between the company and, and all of its stakeholders. And I think being upfront and transparent and being a force for good is the most important thing you can be for your brand, to be visible about it. Right. Well, and that's, I, I think that ultimately the argument can win if you can say, it will help your brand. It will, you will make more money if you pay attention to this stuff. Now you're the CEO of best friend brands and it feels like there is a connection here. So how does that 
yeah, you, what's your philosophy? How does that, if you're thinking about best friend brands and, and your book, how, do, how does that connect? Best friend brands, my, my, my company is a company that really helps business leaders do this sort of conversion we're talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that they realize that something's not right. That as a human being, they realize I really shouldn't be doing this, but they feel they don't have a choice. And that I really just have to focus on efficiency to ad nauseum and, and really pay shareholders as much as possible. But there's a subset of executives out there who already realize that this isn't right and realize there's actually something to gain from being more balanced. People who become B Corps, mm. people who will come out there and be open with their communications and go for the not tested on animals or the organic certification or whatever it is. And in the the summary thought for me has always been, do you want to do you want your business and your brand to be a psychopath or do you want it to be a best friend? <laughs> Because if you, how can you not? I know it's. it's I it's would a, like it's to a be a psychopath, question. please. Yeah, it, well, before we go on, you you said a B corp. What is a B corp for people who are listening and don't know? Sure. What is a, a B corp is an alternate legal way of chartering your corporation. Most people are a C corp. Some individuals are S corps. But there's something that was created a while back by by many many states. I think 37 now offer a B corp, which is a way of incorporating as a quote unquote benefit corporation. Most most traditional charters have a purpose being we'll do whatever we want as long as it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they say. But a B Corp makes you actually say, I'm going to benefit society. And it makes you specifically call out in your legal charter, here's exactly the benefit I'm going to provide to society. And it requires you to put time and energy and money and resources against that and actually file an annual report showing how you did. Mm-hmm. And if you fail to meet that benefit, and if you fail to file that report even, the secretary of state of where your charter can actually take sanctions against you and actually eventually revoke your charter. So it's a way of putting skin in the game and saying, I'm serious about this. I'm a B Corp and I'm committed to it. I've changed my legal structure to support this. Do you get a benefit, a a structural benefit from the state by being a B Corp? Is there an incentive to be a B Corp that's external to the goodness of it? There's no, for a B Corp, there's really no state benefit to it. It really is more of a branding. Okay. um, So you say I'm a B Corp, that this is what I'm doing. This is, I am not just lip service. I actually have to file against this stuff. Right. It's a real Yeah. And it's like any other, it's like any other logo you put on your product. It speaks to a certain member of your target audience. And it says, I'm this, I'm, you know, I'm an organic food so by me. So it's that, it's that. Right. Okay. Interesting. Your book is jam-packed with interesting information. It's great food for a curious mind. But if listeners want to take away one thing from our conversation, what would it be? The one thing I want people to take away from our conversation is the world doesn't have to be this way. Businesses do not have to prioritize profit. So get busy telling them they need to change. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Gabriella. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend, Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>